Another very fun week to follow Eric Ten Hag's Red and White Army, as they extended their unbeaten run to 8, following a solid performance at the Camp Nou and a second-half pasting of Leicester City. United haven't gone on this run without absentees, either, and this week, we discuss some of the tactical adjustments in attack around and including Marcus Rashford's unbelievable scoring run. Case, I actually didn't watch the Barcelona game live, but you did, and it seemed like a blast. So, how'd you find it? Yeah, I think that was um, United's most entertaining European night since uh, Olympiacos, going back literally a decade now. Ah, the um, RVP hat trick. Very yeah. Nice. Yeah, that's why you watch football. Like, those matches are why you watch football. Away, away days to Barcelona... Uh, in Europe. I, I think both sides would have preferred to be in the Champions League, but it was an excellent match. Really fun. It's really fun to play another good team that you don't play often and make a make a good showing of it. You you saved the detail for quite late that this match was actually the Europa League knockout stage entrance playoff. <laughs> yeah, it's all, certainly a fall from grace for both teams, but I don't get the sense that we'll be playing in this fixture again next season. So... So what you're saying is that Barcelona are still going to be in the Europa League next year. <laughs> <laughs> if I speak, I'm in big trouble. All right, let's talk about the game a little bit. I don't think it was an extremely tactically interesting match, but a lot of it was kind of driven by uh, issues for both teams caused by the press, right? Um, United being under pressure from Barca and giving the ball away, or Barca or United pressing Barca into errors and winning the ball high up the pitch and then getting at them. To what extent do you think that is a good thing for United and also a bad thing? I guess it's easy to say giving the ball away in your own half is bad and winning it in their half is good. Yeah, obviously giving up the ball in our own half is bad. And I also think in a match that's going to depend on your ability, to, like which team wins the ball in the opposition half more often and creates more chances from it, if we play this out over many, many, many matches, I think Barcelona is probably better equipped to A, play through our press than we are to play through theirs, and B, capitalize on mistakes, uh, opposition mistakes playing out, right? So with that in mind, I think that this was still a good performance, just because maybe it's not something, maybe it's not how you would want the match to play out over a long period, that doesn't mean in isolation the execution wasn't good. United won the ball in Barcelona's half frequently. They actually didn't create any big chances in this match that didn't originate in Barcelona's half, which is to say they didn't have any big chances that, that they created where they built out from, from their own half. All of them came from high ball wins in Barcelona's half or even in Barcelona's own third. Yeah, I think that's really telling as well because it depicts the game as transitional, which is... I think, correct, right? Like, United didn't have a ton of the possession in this match, but they were still able to force enough issues from the opposition to create chances, which is what you want in these games where you still don't really have the personnel to dominate. Yeah, I think you and I were discussing this before the match, or before we came on air today, after the match, and I shy away from the term transitional for semantic reasons, which is, I think when people think about Barcelona, especially when they think about how Barcelona got knocked out of the Champions League in the fall, they think of Barcelona's vulnerability to counterattacks. This wasn't really a match where United counterattacked so much as it was one where they won the ball high up the pitch. Again, I'm restating my, what, I was, what I said before, but I, I want to make this point clear. This wasn't, this match was end to end, but the actual chances didn't come from end to end play. United would progress into Barcelona's half. They would attempt to create a chance. Barcelona would win the ball back and then try to play out. And then they would make mistakes. And that's where United's chances came from. And vice versa. Barcelona would progress the ball into United's half. They would try to create a chance. They would fail to. They would press a corner. They would press off of a goal kick. They would press off of a throw-in. And United would make mistakes. 
And that's where Barcelona's chances came from overwhelmingly. Even though they scored their goals from a set piece and then later on a sort of a possession uh, phase, overwhelmingly their chances came from mistakes in possession for United. So I think that's an, an important distinction uh, to make between sort of, if you watched Barcelona go out to Inter in the fall, Barcelona had the majority of the ball and then Inter were playing these long balls down the wings. Lautaro Martinez had an incredible performance in that match, holding up play and creating chances in those really fast, long distance transitions, those counterattacks. And that's not what this match was. Yeah, I I think what you're seeing is basically that United are developing the out-of-possession ability to cause these teams a lot of trouble, but also not quite ready to play out of these teams in possession. And I think that makes for a fun match for neutrals, basically. Yeah. Like, we listed this down, and it's like De Gea, Casemiro, Varane, Wamasaka, Fernandez, Fred, they all had struggles in possession of the ball in this match um, and, and giving it away in bad areas. And I think that's somewhat of a cause for concern going forward, but also maybe a cause for optimism because not necessarily all of those players are going to be in the first team in the long-term future. And the fact that you have the fundamentals and are able to continue challenging these games, despite not having the level of personnel that you may ideally want in the team is probably a good sign for where the team is going. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the ironic thing about those players that you named struggling building out is a lot of those players, aside from De Gea and maybe Varane, played a big role in when United created chances from the, the press. So Fred, Casemiro, Bruno, Wambasaka, these are players that you generally, they don't thrive playing out from the back. To varying degrees, again, I don't really want to get into Casemiro discourse. But these are definitely players who thrive on the front foot. They thrive on uh, high ball wins, direct play after high ball wins. Wambasaka, as much as he struggled in possession phases, early possession phases in this match, he was quite good in the final third. So it'll be interesting to see what United lose and gain from personnel changes in matches like this, maybe more control and more ability to play out. Maybe you lose something in the final third. I'm not saying you do. I think probably you won't if you make the right recruitment decisions going forward, but it's, it's food for thought. I, I to play devil's advocate against both of us. Cause I think we both want to see us improve in possession phases. All right. Let's talk about set pieces. Uh, United obviously conceded the opener in this match from a corner that was into the six-yard box, and I feel like that hasn't been an infrequent occurrence over the last few years, but it should be. Corners into the six-yard box aren't, I feel like, a super common source of goals, at least not directly into the six-yard box from the corner flag at Premier League and European level. Uh, So why is this happening? I think you had some ideas. Yeah, so we've talked about United's Specifically, United's corner defense tactics before on this podcast. I forget which match. I think after the Manchester City match back in the fall, we discussed because United conceded twice from set pieces in that match. So the way... I'll I'll refresh your memories. The way United defend corner kicks specifically is they have generally smaller players line up around the penalty spot and man-mark opposition attackers on the six yard box United put their larger players typically Casemiro, Varane, Rashford sometimes because he's taller despite being you know lankier not necessarily somebody you would think of as robust defensively they put those players on the six yard box in a zonal uh, defensive structure which is to say they don't have players that they pick up and are individually responsible for they have a zone of the six yard box that, that they're responsible for essentially covering overloads. So imagine, for instance, you have, I don't know, theoretically, I'm totally making up this example, Kunde, Araujo, and Marcus Alonso on the penalty spot, and they're being man-marked by Fred, Malasia, and I don't know, 
uh, you pick. They're man-marking. On the six-yard box, you have Rashford, Varane, Casemiro, a few other players, Juan Basaka, whoever it may be. If Alonso and Araujo, for example, were to run at the same post, they're, theoretically, the way this structure is supposed to work is both of their man markers would follow them to that post, and then the zonal player would be waiting at that post to prevent one of those attackers getting free. In practice, how this often works out, because it's kind of a simple defensive scheme, is one of the man markers at the penalty spot loses their man, which is to say that their man gets away from them, and then the opposition will overload a post and essentially create two 1v1s. And this is problematic because for the most part, these players who are in man, in man marking are shorter and the players they're marking are taller and now they're 1v1. They don't have support because there's an overload. And you see this play out over and over and over again. Uh, and, and on its own, this is a problem. You don't want, you know, you don't want disadvantageous physical matchups when you're defending set pieces. It becomes an even bigger problem because David De Gea doesn't claim really any balls into his six-yard box. So opposition have increasingly been hitting these in-swinging corners deep into United's six-yard box, a lot of the time to the far post, which really isn't a ball that should ever be on. It has to cross the face of the goal, and the hang time is really high. So a proactive goalkeeper can get to these balls, I'm not going to talk about specifically, I don't want to place tons of blame on De Gea for not getting to this specific cross uh, against Barcelona, even though I think he probably could have. But as a, as a theme, he doesn't get to these balls, and he could get to a lot of them. So when you combine those two things, this flawed, exploitable, mixed uh, defensive scheme, and the fact that you can drop the ball on a dime in the six-yard box, you wind up with a lot of really messy, big chances being conceded from these, these corner kicks. And it's really something I would like to stop seeing because it, this has been across three managers now, if you count Rangnick. I don't really understand why it hasn't changed. Um, it was something that was around before Eric Ramsey, uh, the set-piece coach that we now have, who came from Chelsea, was hired. And it continued after he was hired, and then he stayed on after the manager who hired him left. And I don't even, I'm not even placing blame on him specifically because, again, this scheme existed before he was around. What doesn't add up for me is why there, hasn't, there haven't been any changes even experimented with. This is like United have been using this set-piece defensive schema going back almost five years. That seems odd to me given it doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um... Yeah, I think I feel like it's kind of I don't know. Okay, I guess my follow up is if this scheme doesn't work, what would you like to see instead? Is that something you can answer? Like I feel like it's one of those I'll understand it when I see it and you can't just drop a set piece defensive scheme. But to me, I I feel like in theory at least the idea of tracking the men in a larger pool like the 18 yard box and then covering the zones in the six yard box is actually a pretty practical way of looking at set pieces because you're covering the smaller zone that is the most dangerous and then covering specifically the men who pop up in the larger zone but you're right in that it's definitely causing problems so yeah where's the disconnect here i think maybe less than the actual distribution of where the zonal players are versus where the man players are is how you think about which players should be in man and which players should be in zonal and how you distribute them. I think it's a bad idea to, by design, match up Malasia and Fred with Araujo and Kunde and Alonso. That, that, to me, that doesn't make sense. And I understand the logic of leaving the larger players in the six-yard box in those zonal roles because you're basically guaranteeing that no matter where the ball is delivered, you're going to have a larger player there. You can't target a zone. You have to target 
um, a player, which theoretically could be more difficult. But I think if you mix things up a little bit in such a way that you don't have opposition center backs on your shortest players, that would be positive. Um, so you can start there, but you can also get more complex with it. You can, a, a lot of teams, what they'll do is they'll stagger the zoner, the zonal players. So what we have right now is we have essentially a single line of zonal players standing just inside the six yard box. What you'll see, for instance, don't quote me on this, but I think what Brentford have done in the past is they'll have two lines of zonal players in, in their defensive set piece marking. And what this, what this allows for is instead of being able to isolate one player, anytime a, a player makes a run, they're essentially hitting a gap. But it's not actually a gap. It's, this is hard to explain in, without a visual aid, but because of this staggering, there's never actually a complete gap for you to drop uh, a cross onto. You can't attack a single player because you're always attacking the gap between two players. Does that make sense? I think basically, if I'm understanding correctly, what you're getting at is, in an ideal system, it's not as easy for individuals to isolate zonal markers um, and, and get away for enough of a period of time to get a shot off. Without getting super specific about a solution, which... If that's something people would be interested in, we can we can do that. We can talk about that on a future episode. Let us know. Tag our Twitter. But I think the key thing here is this is obviously a weakness and nothing has changed for a really long time. And either that's a systemic issue that you should be experimenting with or you have to completely place the blame on individuals. And the only individual who has been constant across this whole period is David De Gea but they keep on starting him, which if they don't think it's a De Gea issue, fine, but then do something with the set-piece marking schema because it's not working. I think we'll find out very soon who, or at least if everyone at the club thinks it's a De Gea issue. So maybe this is one to put a lid on or put a pin on and revisit in yeah, a couple months. Probably. That, that would be one of the interesting storylines of the summer. Awesome. Okay. Um, United's goals here. We discovered what we already knew this week, which is that Rashford is in the form of his life, and it showed again in this game. Um, scored a goal from running in behind, and the finish was unbelievable, and then what I thought was even more impressive was the way he floored Rafinha to create the second goal. What are the driving factors behind Rashford becoming this effective um, in the final third? And what, to what extent do you think this is just form versus a change in his skill set or fortunes? There have certainly been some changes in the results in terms of how Rashford creates his goals, right? There's a greater diversity. There seems to be over the course of the season, scoring from headers, using his burst, inside the box, receiving inside the box, and using his burst to create big shots in those scenarios as opposed to taking the ball and trying to do a little too much, often in the wrong situations from outside the box. So I think to a certain extent you can say there's likely been some some improvement to his decision-making and um, how, he, how he uses his skills and uses his body. I think... An equally important aspect has been the out-of-possession structure that we have fostered and created such that we're a much better defensive team from the front means that United are far more frequently confronted disor confronting disorganized defenses, and Rashford has always been incredible in these situations. Even if you go back to when he was really just a prospect in the Mourinho days, this was a situation where he killed the defenders. It's why he's always been so effective in big matches. But now United are more consistently creating these, these semi-transitional moments where they're winning the ball high up the pitch. Defenders are isolated, and Rashford is demonic in these situations. I would hate to be a defender who has to defend Rashford in isolation because he's faster than almost every defender. He's stronger than a lot of center backs now. 
He's got elite acceleration. He's got very good ball striking. And he's a good passer. That there's a, You can go on and on. He's, he's a very well-rounded player when things become streamlined from a, a decision-making perspective, right? Even more so when there's a lot of space. Uh, and those two things often go hand in hand. And so I think that's the main reason we're seeing this, this improved form. But then obviously you can't take away the fact that he's scoring goals of, of a different nature than, than he used to. One of the real points of discussion here is if you are trying to break down an opposition defense, often assume you want to create more by just having better possession play against a block when I think another way of looking at it is winning the ball in high areas more consistently is another way to up the amount of goal scoring chances you generate. And it just so happens that United have one of the best players in the world in those situations specifically. I'd say they have two, really. I think Bruno is also really excellent in those situations where a direct ball against an isolated defensive line can just create a big chance almost in the the blink of an eye. Um, Yeah. And the two together, they really do complement each other in those situations specifically. As much as they make me pull my hair out sometimes when we're confronting more organized blocks. Yeah, I also think Rashford has struck a nice balance between trying to score and trying to assist, if that makes sense. I feel like he is in theme with him playing up front. Um, He's more often looking to get on the end of chances as opposed to trying to create them for others. And I think at his best, that is what he's best at, getting in behind the opposition and driving at them, like you said, usually in transition situations. That has helped him get his shot numbers up a little bit more. Um, And then finally, what I was going to say is he is scoring way, 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 way more uh, than his expected goals at this point. So I do think it's likely he's going to face a drop off at some point. But what I will say is even the underlines that he's producing are still pretty good. Um, He's in the range of 0.4 to 0.45 non-penalty expected goals per 90 which for a left winger is pretty high like that's that's where you want his numbers to be yeah if not a little bit higher but yes um his underlyings this season are career best specifically after that Leicester match uh which really padded them quite nicely he got on the end of many many big chances um but yeah He's exceeding his expected goals by a significant margin. He's got 14 non-penalty goals this season from less than 10 expected goals in the league. That's a big delta. Uh, He will regress a little bit. You can start to talk about whether he's improved his finishing. I'll I'll say this much. Even using, yeah, (laughs) I was going to say it more diplomatically, but even using the eye test, the sample size is very, very, very small. Um, and I would say from the eye test, he hasn't changed his ball striking technique. He hasn't changed how he distributes his ball striking techniques, which is to say he hasn't started using one ball striking technique that he didn't use to, used to use as much more or vice versa. Yeah. And that's, to be clear, that's not criticism. Like, nope, I, I nope, think not at all. it's really easy to say, you know, oh, the best strikers score a higher proportion of their chances than the worst strikers. And I mean, it might be somewhat true, but I don't think it's always true. You know, United's arguably the best goal scorer United have had in the last 10 years was Edinson Cavani. And he's a terrible finisher. The reason why he's a good goal scorer is not because of how he strikes the ball. It's because of how he gets into goal scoring positions um, at times when he's likely to receive the ball. And if Rashford's doing that, it doesn't really matter how good of a finisher he is. He's going to consistently score goals. And in the good periods, it's going to look like this. And in the rough finishing streaks, he's still going to score a steady stream of goals, which is where you want him to be, ultimately. Interesting fun fact about Cavani. I've said similar things about his finishing before, because I agree he does scuff a lot of shots. But if you look at more advanced models, models that are typically proprietary, which is to say they're not publicly available, he actually, he's such an, uh, an effective shot generator, which is to say, he turns dangerous positions in the box into shots using functional athleticism so well that he actually makes a lot of chances that are difficult to finish 
and then scuffs the shots because the shots are so hard to execute. But a lot of players wouldn't even get shots off in those situations. So I, I had a, an interesting conversation with somebody who had access to this, this data about how this can, can play into expect goals numbers where some players can look like they're, they're finishing poorly, but what they're actually doing is they're getting off shots that are very difficult to finish. And I call this the McGuire header from corners. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and less advanced models aren't going to represent that. So that's just an interesting thing to throw out there. I think in general, finishing is a skill, but it's one that most players don't have and don't need to have if they are good at consistently getting shots off, which is way more important and the thing that Rashford's doing well. And because of that, even though he's not necessarily going to be scoring every single game like he is right now, which is a super high bar, he is still going to be scoring pretty frequently if he continues to play like this. And that means that he is going to be United starter for the long-term future, I would say. Yeah, I I would add, I think any role where you can get him in the box as much as possible, Not, I don't think you want him as a focal point, somebody the team is playing off of, but I do think you want him narrow and really... Yeah, trying to affect the game inside the, the penalty area as opposed to from outside to in the way maybe a player like Sancho you, you would want to be doing. I, I think the, the more productive he's going to be, the better the team will be. The more likely he's going to be affecting matches against teams that don't play high lines, against teams that don't give up these transitional opportunities frequently. And I think we're seeing, I think we're seeing that. Awesome. Yeah, and you like helping me transition to the next section more easily because that's a perfect segue. Um, United have done some unconventional things with their forward lineups the last couple matches. It started in the second half of the second match against Leeds where Wout Weghorst moved to number 10 and Rashford went up front and Bruno Fernandes went to right wing, which doesn't seem to make sense, but... I think there's quite a bit of merit to this. Weghorst, to me, seems like he's playing a role where he is doing a lot of the things that Rashford and Bruno struggle to do in those advanced areas. Not necessarily that much else, but he's doing those things. And that's allowing Rashford and Bruno to get back to their best and, and do the things that they're really good at. Let's talk a little bit more about what Weghorst is doing at number 10 and whether you think this is something that United are likely to continue doing in the medium to long-term future uh, with players like Anthony coming back and perhaps what you've seen from Bruno and Rashford during this run. Sure. I don't think this is likely to stick. I'll be honest with you. I think I agree with you. He's, he's doing certain things that Bruno and Rashford don't like to do or aren't capable of doing. A lot of dirty work that is not glorious and obviously... I don't necessarily think it's just dirty work, though. Like, I also think he is making the ball stick at a rate that yeah. they, they don't. I agree. I still view that as dirty work in comparison to assisting and scoring goals. That's why I, I put it that way. I think in this Leicester match, it was sort of a good illustration of why I don't think this is the, the solution in most matches. First half... He's playing as, as a, a 10 or an 8, however you want to view it. I think it just puts him in a really weird middle ground where he doesn't get to do the thing that I think he's most valuable doing, which is being that focal point up front, making the ball stick. He's sort of he's, he's dropped deeper, which I don't really think he has an advantage in midfield zones in this capacity. He's big, but I don't think he's technical or mobile compared to midfielders, whereas I think he is compared to defenders. Uh, not mobile, but he has the technicality to, to, to move around Premier League defenders. In midfield, yeah, I agree. He does a lot of off-ball work. He makes the ball stick. But I think really, especially against sides like Leicester, where you should be pinning them, 
he should be playing center forward in these matches. And I think that's part of why you saw that switch later on. Because I don't even think you lose that much having Rashford a left wing in these matches. And I do think you actually... I, I, I'll be honest, I don't think Rashford should have been playing striker in this match. I don't think it made sense. And I think it's a uh, an underrated part of why United were poor in the first 30 minutes. Because, like you said, they couldn't make the ball stick high up the pitch. Because Rashford wanted to keep on making those runs in behind. And he should. He should make those runs. But I think you probably want him making those runs from left wing. And you want somebody who's more like a focal point at center forward. That doesn't mean Rashford should never play striker. I think Barcelona is a great example of a match where he should play striker. For different reasons. United aren't necessarily trying to make the ball stick against a team like Barcelona. They're looking to strike quickly. They're looking to get behind a defensive line that's often very, very high, which isn't necessarily true about Leicester, though their defensive line is higher than some other Premier League teams. Yeah, I think ultimately it's just who you're going to play at center forward between those two, assuming Martial isn't available, comes down to the opposition. Okay, so you do agree that Weghorst played 10 to help the ball stick and do some of the dirty work, but you don't really think it's a workaround that you want to see in the near, mid, medium to long-term future. Yeah, I yes, exactly. I thought it was a, a fun solution for that the, the first time he tried it in the second half against um, Leeds. But I, I don't love that it's something that we've seen a bunch Partially because I, I think we saw Sancho in the second half against um, Leicester made the, makes the ball stick the, it, to a much greater extent, is much more creative, is much more technical. You definitely lose defensive output, but if instead of playing Rashford at center forward, you play Rashford at left wing, you can have that defensive output at center forward ahead of Sancho, still make the ball stick, still have the, the threat in behind from Rashford. And then you have Garnacho on the bench, uh, who, who can come on against tired legs. I really think Garnacho and Rashford is kind of a redundant personnel combination. As an aside, is kind of a redundant personnel combination in a match like this. So I, I didn't love that selection choice. Interesting. Let's talk a little bit more about Sancho first. So, yeah, Sancho came on at number 10. This is something we've been talking about, I think, sort of sporadically on this podcast. Um, Sancho. It's a very subtle victory lap. We we said he should we we said he should try this six months ago. <laughs> yeah, when I say sporadically, I mean we brought it up and talked about it for twenty minutes this one time, and then assumed it would never happen. It has happened. Sancho scored. I thought he looked very good. Um, I think there's a lot to his game that playing at number ten helps. I think there's a lot to his game that helps this team with him playing at number 10. What do you think the odds are that we're going to continue to see this? And how does that work with the other attacking players in this team? I think we'll continue to see this on and off. But I don't think... Simply because we have Anthony, and I don't see Anthony when he's healthy, really ever being dropped, regardless of whether people would like him to be. I don't see it happening. For that reason, I don't think Sancho will ever nail down the 10 position because Bruno will always play. And I think Anthony will basically always play. And Rashford will always play. And then you need a focal point. A striker. Yeah, you need need a striker, really. And Sancho is not a striker. So... There are situations where this will work. In fact, I think it'll work in a lot of matches. I, I don't think it would be a bad thing if he nailed down this position, but I don't think he will. Okay, well, why do you think it wouldn't be a bad thing if he nailed down this position? I just think it suits him a lot. It gets him out of isolation situations. It allows him to combine. Again, I've said these things on the podcast before. It puts him in a position where he can combine with players because he has teammates on both sides of him as opposed to being cornered against the touchline which really is in his game um he's better in tight areas than bruno is because he is more comfortable turning and running with the ball and he's super super tidy and honestly i think he has the best eye for a simple pass that creates 
a huge chance of any player in the team. I think at least three times since he's come back from his sabbatical, he's been in a, a shooting position or something near it where it's sort of contested, but most players would, would rip a shot off. And instead he just plays a very calm ball across the six yard box for basically a point blank look at goal. And he still hasn't gotten an assist from it, but he will soon. Yeah. That white course one V one killed me a little bit. Brutal. He also, he played Bruno today. Bruno didn't even get a shot off. It wasn't simple, but it was a great pass. Um, and he's, it's happened before. It's a very different style to Bruno where I think Bruno, he can pull off amazing passes. There's no doubt. Um, but he, he can pull Sancho, off passes I, that Sancho can't pull off. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas with Sancho, I think a lot of it is honestly just having the ability to take control of the ball for long enough that the play opens up for him and then having the execution to play that. Um, which sounds like something that a lot of players could do, um, but I think it's mentally a more difficult thing to be able to carry the ball recognize when the when the openings come and play into them and I also think it's the type of thing that requires you to play in the right team and the right environment and like you said I think playing him at number 10 really helps because you get no matter where he is he's likely to have passing options he's likely to have a way out Um, he's likely to be a more powerful dribbler from central areas than he is out wide I think where a lot more of the beating players on the dribble is based on athleticism. And I think you're just putting him in positions where you're going to create a lot of these moments where he's isolating defenders or rather drawing out moments from the opposition defense that are going to create space and then playing into that space, which is a really, like you said, easy but super effective way of creating chances. Yeah, I'll, I'll add on, I think a funny side effect and definitely a positive thing of Sancho playing at 10 is when we win the ball high up the pitch and Sancho is in that number 10 position, the ball goes to him immediately in central areas and he's the best decision maker in the team. So he almost never just rips off a shot, which is something Bruno would do, which rarely ends in a goal. Instead, he sort of becomes responsible for where the attack goes, which I'm much more comfortable with than Bruno. However, you don't lose all of the things that Bruno brings because Bruno's right there on the right wing and often Sancho will feed him and Bruno can still play, you know, the Hollywood ball to, to create the goal. And we saw that today for what it's worth. He created two, like he was awesome. Yeah. No, no, Bruno's great. This isn't like, this, this This is really more about getting the most, it's almost about getting the most out of Bruno. If you force Bruno wide, you make him pass instead of taking these speculative shots, these quick trigger shots that I don't think are for the best. And if you have Sancho Sancho Central, you sort of let him decide when it's best for Bruno to have the ball, which I like. I I definitely don't think this is purely, this is the design, this is the idea, like, oh, we need to take decision-making power out of Bruno's hands and give it to Sancho. But I do think that's ultimately what happens, and I do think that's good. Yeah, I think any decision that gets Bruno closer to goal and closer to the final pass is going to be something that makes the best out of what he is. Honestly, I hope that we're heading to a place where, you know, the starting attackers aren't the only ones who can do stuff. Like, I feel like for so long, it's just been like, oh, you have Bruno and Rashford and, you know, recently Anthony, and they play every game and they are needed to win every game. And having players like Sancho and Garnacho who can come in and make an impact is likely to change how United attack because one, they're slightly different to those guys and they give you an option that can keep defenses on their feet. They're not just preparing for three guys anymore. And two, I mean, they give you fresh legs. They give you other tactical options. They give you, you know, in games where United are likely to struggle to get the ball into central areas, you might want to play Sancho because he's going to get you on the ball, making good decisions in the final third. In games where, you know, United are getting the ball into central areas, but it's a little bit flat. That's when you really want Bruno because Bruno is going to take flat games and totally crack them open. Um, with his ability to basically create something out of nothing uh, with how good of a passer of the football that he is. That's a level of option that United just have not had for a long time. So that's one thing I'm looking forward to going forward. And yeah, long may Sancho's form continue. 
I say it every week. I'm rooting so hard for him. I really, I celebrate his goals so hard. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Well, the end of the match against Leicester was a pasting. United finished the game with over four XG, according to Understat. But I don't think it really started that way. Uh, so in the first half an hour, I think United were giving the ball away a lot, especially in areas where it was easy to get at them immediately. And so they were conceding shots that I think could have scored and made this game a little bit ugly. Is this just a case of United struggling to play out of the back? Uh, is it a case of making mistakes that they don't usually make? Or do you think that this is a sign of a deeper systemic problem? Yeah, I would say A, problems playing out from the back. Like always, this is not new. Fred really struggled in the first 30 minutes in this match, in the first really 50 minutes of this match. You really just want to keep him out of our own third on the ball as much as possible. And that it's it's a tall task when Sabitzer is your other midfielder, who I think is fine in his own third, but certainly nothing to write home about. And then you have... You have other weaknesses. I th- Some people felt this was a good match from Lindelof. I thought Lindelof was very poor, especially early on. Uh, not just I, th- I thought possession, he was fine, but-, but I wasn't amazed. In-, in possession, definitely not. Yeah. Um, I like that he was more, I think he was more proactive than usual. And I don't think towards he the end of the match, rolled over. Towards the end of the match, he-, he did a lot better when United were on the front foot. But I felt he was he was quite poor early on playing out. So yeah, that's both A and C, because it's A, problems playing out from the back, and C, systemic issue. This, I think, is also the match where it's easiest to claim Casemiro was missed of the three matches United have played without him. The reason I say that is there was just so much trouble when United would go long from goal kicks, which they did a lot early on controlling the second ball. Uh, it was pure chaos. And with Casemiro, it, that that chaos would have been a lot more controlled. Uh, so I don't think he necessarily would have helped too much playing out from the back. But I do think when we're in these second ball heavy uh, situations, he, he helps. Sweeps everything he up. sweeps everything up. Exactly. And, and, and the last thing I'll add is I felt... Garnacho was very, very poor out of possession in this match. And that coupled with the fact that Rashford doesn't offer a lot out of possession at striker meant it was incredibly easy for Leicester to build down their right side, our left. Um, yeah, that's really about it. Awesome. Yeah, I agree about the Casemiro point. I think Casemiro is probably United's most or second most irreplaceable player, I feel like. And... I mean, getting seven points out of nine without him doesn't feel like the worst outcome, does it? No, not at all. That said, I do think it's basically what we deserved from these matches. We the, the first Leeds match, we should have won. The second Leeds match, we probably should have dropped points. It flipped, and then we smoked Leicester in the second half to the point where, even if I think we'd conceded in the first half, if we'd put that same performance in in the second, it wouldn't have made a difference. Um, yeah, I, I think there's some there's some... Really big positives to take from the second half in particular. That's the most XG we've created in a half. I think, I'm totally guessing, I'm going to go ahead and say that's the most XG we've created in a single half without a red card that we have on record, which would be going back to 16-17. Yeah, I think that's likely true. The other thing I'll add is not only was it a ton of XG, it was also less than 30 shots. Um, so Lots of big chances. That makes it even more meaningful because, yeah, you're getting a lot of high-quality chances, which we can, we, can get, we can get into the weeds of XG one day and whether you know 10 high-quality chances is better than 30 low-quality chances that amount to the same XG. But the point I'm trying to make is that United are able to create high-quality chances, which is a good thing. Yeah, I mean, you, you want to be breaking down these teams I think having the lead might have helped, but I don't necessarily think that helped United control the game because Leicester had all the incentive to try and get back into this. Um, and at 1-0 down or 2-0 down, they would have had some level of belief that they could have. So there's no reason to believe United should have dominated this game more at 1-0 than they, than they 
should have at nil nil. And so I don't really think game state is a concern here, which means that this is just a good attacking performance, I think, in the second half. Yeah, good stuff. Leicester aren't a low block side, so this isn't like dismantling, for instance, um Yeah, we had like five episodes around the time we United played like Wolves, Bournemouth Forest, all those teams. Leicester don't really play like that. They're at their best, they were uh, you know, high press and uh, build out of the back kind of team. I think now they switch between a few different things depending on how games go. I think they've lost a couple of, um, I don't know if they've lost key players, but they've lost a little bit of the edge that made them able to do that at their best. And I think other teams in the league have gotten a bit better um, and and learned how to mark some of some of what they do out. But largely, yeah, there are more technically able side than um many of the other top half teams and that's the other thing i would say is their front four uh tete james madison barnes and inyanacho are largely better than other teams in the league and what they have up there and i think that makes a big difference when they're winning the ball in transition situations they have four attackers who are all at least league average which most teams in the mid-table, have at least one or two below-average attackers that they're starting every week. And, again, this isn't me saying that Madison is average. I'm just saying, in general, there isn't a weak link in that in that front four, um, which is pretty rare. Yeah. Yeah, and I thought they all had good games, too. So, well, What do you anticipate for this coming week? How do you expect us to line up against Barcelona? Do you have a prediction for our, our, our first cup final in, in a few years? This is exciting stuff. This is a huge match. This is this could this is a huge match. <laughs> Newcastle. This is an interesting one. The goalkeeper situation had me laughing a little bit. You know, I don't really like piling on Loris Carius. I think there's a lot at play from what happened. Even though I'm not exactly sad that Liverpool lost that final, but I think it's actually relatively likely he puts together a good game. I think he's a good goalkeeper. I, like at the time, he I, certainly I was. Thought he was a good point. player. Yeah. So. Yeah. So. Even though Nick Pope and the famous Martin Dubrovka are out, I think there's a chance that Carius can do something for them. How would I set up in these games? That's a good question. I feel like the biggest pain point for Ten Hag in making these selections is whether to go with Fred or Sibitzer in midfield. I feel like the back four picks itself, De Gea picks himself, Bruno, Rashford, Weghorst, and depending on Anthony's fitness, and I guess depending on Martial's fitness, um, I guess the remainder is probably Sancho. You probably go with Sancho at 10, Weghorst at 9, Rashford left, Bruno right. If Anthony's back, you probably drop Sancho and move Bruno to the center. If Martial's in, there's a toss-up. I think I would play Martial against Barcelona. I'm not sure whether I'd play Weghorst against Newcastle. Yeah, so it, it really leaves Fred or Sibitzer. And I would I would say Sibitzer and Casemiro haven't played together yet, I think. so. That's correct. That That's a, odd to think about, isn't it? Yeah, that might be a that might be a factor in Ten Hag's mind. You know, first match together is a second leg against Barcelona in the Europa League or a cup final. I don't know if that's what you go with. So maybe it'll be Casemiro and Fred, but... Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. What do you think? Against Barcelona, I think the main changes I would make... Obviously, if Isandro comes in, you put Shaw at left back, and I would put in Dallo. Something that we didn't talk about, touch on when we talked about the Barcelona match was the last 15 minutes, where Barcelona brought on Andreas Christensen for uh, Marcos Alonso, and the match really changed. Barcelona had a lot more control, and they were going for the 3-2. And... They created a lot of opportunities in this period, uh, and most of them came from crossing opportunities. And a big part of that had to do with suffering wing dynamics. Really, the 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 really uh, Rafinha had Malasia on skates for a, a good portion of this match. Wamasaka wasn't handling exchanges very well with the winger on his side either. Um, and what that allowed for was Barcelona to, to just whip in a volume of crosses that isn't acceptable late in, late in a match where you're trying to hang on. You really just don't want to allow those balls into the box in the first place. And yeah, I mean, that's that. And I think your two best fullbacks playing will, will help. 
I, I, I really think it adds a dimension to the team. Like having Dalo and Shaw at fullback is such a big strength in possession. I, I really feel like Dalo and Shaw are two two of the best in the world in that department, and it is obvious whenever they play. Like they were so good against Leicester. Yeah, I agree with that. Those two, I would definitely go Casemiro and Fred. Personally, I agree with you. I don't think you want to go Sabitzer and Casemiro for the first time in a second leg against Barcelona in Europe. And then as for the League Cup, I think it's a little too far out for me to to say specifically what I would go for. I think I agree with you that this is not the match. Eh, if Martial's fit, I could see starting Martial in this match, actually. Uh, mostly because you're going to be playing through what's a pretty, albeit simple, sophisticated Newcastle press. And so I think, again, you want to make the ball stick uh, high up the pitch. And I think, yeah, this is a match where, where we would benefit from having Martial at center forward. Uh, as for the wingers, assuming we don't have anyone newly fit for that Newcastle match, I think you probably go Rashford at left wing, Sancho at 10, Bruno at right wing. Try that out uh, in, in a huge, yeah. huge match. Yeah, I really don't think it's a big risk to try Sancho at 10 and Bruno at right wing if Anthony's out. I think it would be a big call to leave Anthony out at this stage. But if Anthony's not available, I feel like Sancho's the best player to come in. And that's how you get the best out of those three um, as a whole. So, Agreed. All right, Aaron. Sounds like that's a, that's a week. Let's call it. Awesome. All right. We'll be back soon. And enjoy the massive cup matches, I guess. It's been a while since this. Hopefully they don't end in heartbreak or go to penalties because I will lose it. See you next week, everyone. Hope you enjoyed this week's Devils in the Details. You can follow us at DevilsITDPod on Twitter or on a variety of streaming platforms. Our awesome theme music was made by Jacob Connor. You can find at Jacob J. Connor on Twitter. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.